Welcome to a very special podcast. I'm excited to have a friend and client, Jeff Waters, President and Chief Investment Officer of OFC Wealth Management. Jeff's been a long-time investor with us, and he and I were chatting a couple of weeks ago, and he reads our blog, and he said, you know, Simon, it would be great if you could get into some of the detail and some of the names that you own. I'm sure a lot of readers would find that interesting. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea to have Jeff talk to Henry, my partner, Henry's head of research uh, at SL Advisors and, and knows as much about these names as anybody else. And so that's what we set up. So I'm pleased to have Jeff Waters. Uh, Jeff has a long career in research on Wall Street. He was um, in a, he was a research salesman at Solomon Brothers and then subsequently was associate director of U.S. equity research at Solomon Smith Barney where he managed the day-to-day operations of the number one ranked equity research department. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Simon. And, Henry, great to have you on, as always. Yes, happy to be here. So I'm going to step back, and I'm going to uh, let Jeff interview Henry and and draw out some of the insights that we have about the pipeline companies that we own. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, the show's yours. Thanks, Simon. as Simon mentioned, I used to be on the sell side and uh, was associate director of U.S. equity research at Solomon Smith Barney. So on a day-to-day basis, I worked with analysts and helped them think through their sector, their stock recommendations, et cetera. And it just led to this conversation where uh, we decided I would do this with Henry, just take the approach of let's go through this group and see why we think it might be attractive for fundamental investment. So, Henry, going back before the pipeline stocks blew up, these stocks have performed very well for many years. And many people at the time considered them, you know, so-called bulletproof stories. As we know, there's no such thing. But going back to that time, let's go back and review the characteristics that were so appealing in the group. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It was a very, very loved sector uh, for many reasons. And you go back and it really began to come into favor kind of the energy bull run of, you know, kind of the early 2000s up until 2007. And this is where companies are really increasing their distribution and paying very healthy distributions to investors. Midstream, you know, the pipeline transportation sector for oil and gas was really synonymous with MLPs. And these companies paid out all of their, uh, what they called cash flow after maintenance capex as distributions. And so it gave a nice distribution yield and they were growing them. They were growing them quite rapidly leading up, you know, 2005, six, seven, you would see distribution yields increasing double digits each year. And so it became a very loved sector. But then, then in 2008, the sector declined very rapidly. And then you, but then it bounced back incredibly quickly. And what caused it to bounce back was they continued, they held their distributions and they actually increased distributions slightly in 2008 and 2009. And I think this led many people into the sector that became, you know, confident that these distributions were stable, were increasing, you know, kind of survive this uh, catastrophic scenario of a financial uh, collapse in 2008-2009. Let's just take a pause here on the MLP structure. I mean, that was an integral part of that uh, bullish story. Uh, I mean, you touched on the distributions. But, you know, let's go through that MLP structure a little bit because it it figures in the story later on. Why is it that people like that so much? Yeah, this is a great great feature of the MLP structure where you get tax deferred income. 
And this is what the investors uh, in, the, in the sector, the investor segmentation was largely high net worth clients, really pre-2015, particularly pre-2010. It was high net worth clients that very much valued this tax deferred income. And in the MLP structure, because it's a pass-through structure, you're not paying corporate tax. So it really is flowing through. And then due to the nature of an infrastructure business, which is cap, CapEx intensive, you can shield a lot of that income. So you'd show very little profitability while you're actually flowing off huge cash flows, where you have this huge initial spend on a pipeline and then very little additional spend after that, where you generate high cash flows, but you have this depreciation shield behind it. So what you do is you get this tax deferred income. And the idea back then was, I'm just going to hold these for the rest of my life and I'll never actually have to realize these taxes. You know, hold them until I die. And that was very appealing for yield seeking investors. Okay. That's great. High dividend yield, growing dividends, and uh, potentially perpetually deferred taxes. Sounds like a winner. So what went wrong? Yeah, what went wrong was when in the Shell Revolution, they required a lot of CapEx. So CapEx really began to climb in 2010. Uh, oil production really picked up in, in the U.S. And then natural gas was, was kind of exponentially rising. Natural gas production was exponentially rising in the U.S., and so you were seeing equity offerings in the space, you know, really creeping up. I mean, you went to 15 billion and, and kind of 2011 and ticked higher 2012 by 2013, 14 and 15, you were seeing $25 billion a year of equity issuances uh, and an equivalent amount of debt. And so here's a, a sector that's spending $50 billion a year in a niche sector that they're totally reliant on the capital markets. And what happened in you know, when the oil prices began to decline in late 2014 and throughout 2015 and then, and then kind of collapsed in 2016, you saw the capital markets just pull back completely. There were almost no, essentially zero equity and debt offerings in 2016. And that they had to look to another place. How are they going to fund these projects they've committed to? And that model of let's build long, you know, it takes, it takes years to bring on large infrastructure products. And yet they were financing uh, short. So build long finance short model had to change and they had to self-finance uh, a lot of these projects when the market's closed to them. To look for that capital, what do they have to do? They had to do two things, which was cut the distributions, which was in two ways they did it. One was a backdoor cut and the other was an outright cut. Now the outright cut, you can see that directly hurts, you know, people that are in the sector looking for yield. The backdoor cut was even more painful because they were rolled up by their GP, uh, often in corporate form. And that gave them two things. One, it lowered the income they were receiving because GPs had much lower yields in corporate form. It removed the tax advantage that they were getting, but also gave them a tax bill. And so it really disenfranchised the people that were there for tax deferred income uh, just got clobbered. It was it was the absolute opposite of what they wanted. And they didn't need all the growth or were looking for it. And that began a cycle that started to unwind, you know, a lot of the investors, you know, why they were in the sector, getting these tax bills, they were upset with a lot of retail investors that were attracted to the sector, you know, starting really in 2010 with AMLP. Then they began to see those distribution cuts, MLPs, backdoor or outright, through AMLPs lowering distribution. Over time. Okay, you have a, a business that's now starting to boom. You have heavy CapEx, you have a financing mismatch. Uh, did you also have a few high-profile projects there 
where you started to get into legal and environmental roadblocks. So you had, you know, sunk capital, not earning a return. Was that part of it also? That's right. And you really began to see that pick up. You began to see these roll-ups and consolidation, which really lowered the income that was receiving on an MLP portfolio. If you were in mostly in corporations or the GPs, uh, which is how we structured a lot of our strategies over time, we didn't see a big difference. You know, distributions are roughly flat now over that period of time. But names that had to really look for capital, you saw saw that first kind of wave that really had to, to get their financing in order. During this process, when companies were kind of desperate, you know, you want to you have to spend, spend, spend until the pipeline comes online and then it flows cash flows. You went through this very painful period where activists got a lot more successful from sympathetic judges in the courts to allowing them to bring their cases forward and delay these pipeline projects. And, and it really depends geographically where you were. And you saw that if you needed a presidential permit in, in Keystone XL, you saw ridiculous scenario play out um, in DAPL, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, that everyone, you know, is on TV. Pipeline got canceled under the Obama administration. It was back on under Trump. It was Albertans put up the money to continue it again. It got canceled first day of the new administration, of Biden's administration. And then you saw in the Northeast, you know, New York denying water permits to get pipelines, natural gas pipelines to the Northeast out of Appalachia, despite, and, and then you've seen it going to the Southeast as well. I mean, you're still held up with Mountain Valley, Dominion. They just canceled Atlantic Coast pipeline coming out of there, sold their transmission assets to Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And so it's been a painful experience going through it. And now because, you know, it, you cost overruns, you get these delays that are endless. And there's very little you can do about it because the way that they're successful is they go to the courts and say this permit was done wrong or the wrong study was or the wrong agency did it. So basically, you have this booming business, heavy capex, a timing mismatch. And then you have these complicated corporate structures with the GP and the MLP. And it turns out that there were maybe uh, conflicts of interest where management's uh, personal interests are not aligned with the shareholders at the MLP. And you get a bunch of dividend cuts and the whole thing, which looked bulletproof, falls apart, right? So how did the management adjust? And uh, related to that, what has happened to the fundamentals of the business as we came out of that period? Great question. It's You've shifted from this focus on yield-based valuation, you know, total return, you say dividend yield plus growth, to now it's a free cash flow uh, focused story. It's a capital return story in which companies that are rewarded from a valuation perspective are rewarded for free cash flow after covering the dividend. So now People like safety. They like to see dividends are more than covered. You have this, you know, really focus on capital discipline. You have a focus on return on invested capital, which you didn't have nearly enough focus on back, you know, 10 years before it. It was just, you know, you're an MLP, try to maximize that distribution. And now there is a real focus on return on invested capital to the extent that you want to tip projects. And it used to be even for the best projects, for, you know, long linear infrastructure projects, you'd look for 10% return on invested capital, uh, unlevered. And now those returns are, you know, it's double that you're looking for due to all the uncertainty, you know, it's legal and environmental uh, side, as well as the capital discipline imposed. So now it's very much a free cash flow story, capital return story, and spending discipline, along with the corporate governance of, of aligning the interest between management and shareholders that wasn't really there and wasn't there at all 
back in the world of GP and LPs. Okay, and uh, the balance sheets. How are these companies' balance sheets right now? So today, the balance sheets are incredibly strong. Almost every company is unlevered versus it says long-term goals. It's the sector is back in, put in perspective, back in 2013-14, they were five times leveraged, right? Today, they're, they stand around three and a half times. Balance sheets are in order. This sector it used to you know, spend, spend more than their cash flow, negative free cash flows. Uh, that have turned to a large uh, free cash flow uh, story. So, so very financially sound, you know, you know, really across the board. And then they spend within their self-financing, largely new, new growth across the board, new growth projects, capital markets. So you have a 180 here, right? You, you go from a group of companies and let's face it, people in the oil patch, you know, they were born to spend money and look for oil and gas, right? I mean, it's like the old joke goes, it's, it's in their nature. They can't help it, right? So now they are forced to have discipline, disciplines of the marketplace kick in. You have a completely reverse situation. You have companies that are now relatively lowly levered, generating a tremendous free cash flow and with the discipline uh, to not go out and spend it unless they can earn a very high return. Uh, this is the conversation I've been having with Simon, you know, going back for a while, saying as someone who looks at the whole market, you know, the market's been so expensive, driven by free money and low interest rates. For me, it was hard to find a group where I felt that there was actually intrinsic value on a bottoms up basis. You know, that the stocks were genuinely attractively valued, not just attractively valued relative to other things. And so how should we think about uh, intrinsic value for the group if we try to construct a total rate of return model? Let's go through it. Uh, first of all, what's what's the current yield for the group right now or, or on 22 and 23 uh, earnings, especially if you take Chenier out, which is really a special situation? Right. It's the yield. You know, if you look at dividend yields today, they sit at five and a half percent this year, 2023, probably five, I think 5.8 percent or so. At Chenier, which is a big uh, this is looking at the American Energy uh, Independence Total Return Index uh, and, and at Chenier in that. If you own other things, since it, it's a large position, it pays a small dividend, then you're closer to, you know, 6.2% or so. So dividend yields are around 6% today, and that's supported by free cash flow yields, which we really like to focus on of around 10%. So you can look at payout ratios on free cash flow are around six, you know, you're paying out two thirds of free cash flow, which is really unreal and versus other sectors. And if you look at cash flow, which we like to focus on, because, you know, if you're an owner and you own the whole business, that's what you care about, is how much cash flow am I generating after a little bit of maintenance capex. Payout ratios there are 50%. You know, you're covering that dividend by 2x. So what does that mean for dividend growth and or share repurchase? Because obviously, share repurchase has been a material part of the capital return landscape in the markets for the last several years. How would you break it down? What do we think a uh, more sustainable dividend growth rate is given those low payout ratios? And how much accretion do we think we have from share repurchase? It, companies seem to be guiding to, towards about 1% to 2% of their market cap of share repurchases going forward. You know, increasing dividends, if you just if you kept the payout ratio at 50% to be incredibly comfortable, we think you could still see mid-single-digit cash flow growth leading to that dividend growth over time. So I would put that as a you know conservative estimate for it. Because clearly over time, you know, production is ramping now under under a very strong macro environment of commodity prices. 
but as that kind of normalizes a little bit, you'll really, the you know, remaining projects will come online and those payout ratios we would expect to creep back up. So I think you'll see very disciplined growth over time, but you'll have a very long, kind of long visibility into distribution growth as you can continue to increase the payout ratio, uh, which increases dividends over time, even without kind of that, this very robust cash flow growth. Okay, so would, would a 3 to 5% dividend growth outlook be a reasonable conservative number to put on this? Yes, we, we model it at closer to 5 to 7% over the next five years. But yeah, I think that's that's pretty conservative. It depends, you know, it also depends on kind of where share prices go over time. If, if you, t- you know, the market, the sell side loves to look at EV to EBITDA. Just for some quick math on that, at EV to EBITDA in 2013 to 14, the last time we saw, you know, over $100 oil and and everyone was very optimistic and the outlook was rosy, you're at 15 times EV to EBITDA at five times leverage. So if you do the equivalent, put an EV to EBITDA multiple around that 15 times of that range at, at three and a half times leverage, you're at 11 and a half times. Today, they sit at nine minus three and a half on the market. So, so you're at five and a half times kind of market to market cap to, to EBITDA adjusting for the debt. So that would be over 100% return. And I think if you saw... You know, if you saw the stocks double, then you'd shift even more so from share repurchases to, to a real sustainable dividend growth. Okay. Um, so a so variable dividend, but I think it could pick it's pretty not assuming price appreciation. Yeah, we think you can see the mid mid single digits, mid to high single digits. Okay. So so a six percent current yield, a potentially mid single digit dividend growth, another one to two percent accretion from share repurchase. You're now in this 10 to 12 or possibly more total rate of return, which is not based on some hope for a new product in the future, but based on the cash flow and leverage structure that we have right now, right? And so for those of us who are financial advisors and hope and pray that the stock market will continue to generate that 10% total rate of return that it has over decades and decades and that is built into all the financial planning software and the Monte Carlo simulations, where down deep you just wonder if you can really depend on that from uh, the starting point of these valuations. This group offers you that total rate of return or better based on actual current condition. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it, you can look at it with it's a very comfortable dividend is one way. You can look at the, the cash flow the companies generate after just maintenance capex to get to a steady state, which we which we call cash flow available for dividends distribution, which stands around 14 percent. You know, if you just want to go really you know, basic finance, you can take the retained earnings, the percentage of that, you know, that's retained invested in growth projects. And assuming, you know, now with capital discipline, that's 20 percent or so uh, return invested capital, you know, unlevered, which would get you to a 5% growth rate. Combine that with a free cash flow of 10, you're around 15%. So you want to be super conservative, you go back to the 10% rates and then get to a total return of 12.5%, 2.5% and 10 on free cash flow. So I think a lot of different ways to look at it gives you a good good bit of comfort in the valuations, not assuming any multiple expansion uh, today. With, with very good visibility in the space and right. predictability of recurring cash flows. So this is a confluence of factors that has brought this group to a place where a lot of people knew that it blew up. Obviously, the early days of COVID were very difficult for the group getting clobbered. 
And it's just taking a while for people to wake up to what's really going on with the fundamentals of a group of companies that many investors don't know them very well. Here we are at this juncture, the very attractive outlook again. Just, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least conclude with asking what could go wrong. Obviously, I started out saying there was a period where the stocks looked bulletproof. Turns out they weren't. There's no such thing. As you look at the sector right now, what are the one or two things that we should be most concerned about? Is it commodity prices or is it something else? Um, Your severe economic downturn in the medium term, of course, it would hurt everything, but also it would hurt energy infrastructure. One of the things that you could really crimp demand, and it could be almost self-inflicted from high commodity prices in this environment. I mean, you're seeing really nosebleed prices out of Europe, just astounding. I mean, you're still at $60 or so natural gas out of Europe, which is, you know, you look at 350 plus oil equivalent dollars. That in the, in the very short term, you know, the sector always trades off on these uh, Chinese lockdowns, COVID concerns. I think that would present some risk. You always higher interest rates. It is a yield valuation sector over long periods of time. Correlation isn't high, but when you see them tick up quickly, yield val- valued sectors, utilities or or the midstream get, get some volatility uh, in that space. So, so I think those are those are some big risks, I think, early on from an investment uh, perspective. Fundamentally, I think, strangely enough, what you would have is if you had this a return to very rate payer friendly, if you came like you know, citizen friendly almost, we want to keep prices, do the opposite of what they're doing in Europe. We want to keep prices, uh, let people heat their homes for a cheap price, get the infrastructure to them at, that allows you to move gas to produce it. So you have this kind of abundance again. Uh, which would really take sweeping legislation, change a lot of the way how the courts have, have been. I know you've allowed these activists with really no skin in the game or any real reason to be bringing these suits to bring it. If you did something like that, you know, where you make it very easy to build new infrastructure, I think it'd get quite competitive because the last thing you want is downward pressure tariffs you can, you can charge. You know, you, you want upward pressure on rates. You want it very hard to build new pipelines as an investor. And so strangely okay. enough, a very, you know, kind of friendly, a policy or a policy that becomes friendly to to the users of in, to industry and consumers and residential people and, and ratepayers would be one could weigh on it in the long term. So yeah. this is yet another example of which we have so many in life of the law of unintended consequence. Now, that's a great heads up. I think in conclusion, we can say what we've got is a group of cheap stocks based on free cash flow, where that free cash flow is now in the hands of management have been burned when they squandered it last time. So for those dependent on that 10% plus long-term return on equities, this group is structurally in a good place to generate it without having to sustain high valuations and where your returns are in current yield and very visible dividend growth. That's a perspective. Thanks, Henry, for that deep dive into a group that is pretty complex when you get into the structure of it. But when we go back up to 50,000 feet as investors and look at this, you know, the picture becomes a lot clearer. So, uh, yeah, Jeff and Henry, that was great. That was uh, a a good discussion highlighting the pipeline sector and and, and where the value is. And uh, so thank you both for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Simon. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for listening to SL Advisors Talks Markets. To find more episodes like this one, go to our website, sl-advisors.com. There you can sign up for our blog, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and follow us on Twitter at Simon Lack.